when things are so dark and bleak and many were fed and the sea was calmed. This is Matthew chapter 14. We're going to try to do the whole um, chapter, as I said, if it's possible. First slide. So a quick review, and it is truly a quick review. It's nice to actually be back teaching the word because it's been so long. I forgot how to do it. <laughs> but uh, it's nice to share the word of God with you guys. This is awesome. Uh, I was excited about it. And even last night, maybe I was a little bit worried. And that's kind of why I was all wound up and everything, you know, thinking and praying, especially the topic at hand. But it's nice to be back. It's been a while. Jesus, we left him off, basically. If you remember, he was preaching and teaching and doing all these miraculous things and just showing the people that the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, turn, repent, follow your Messiah. Boom, his, his ministry is just out of this world. Beautiful. I mean, as we're going to see here, even, even like the, the, the powers of the time, you know, like, uh, uh, like Herod and, you know, and, and they, they got their attention. They're watching him, you know, and they're, and they're afraid of him and his cousin, John the Baptist, and the, the miraculous things that they're doing. I mean, a real, a real strong presence. Then he gets to his hometown. And he gets to his hometown and he's just doing what he does. He's healing. He's doing miraculous things. He's teaching with, with such wisdom and clarity and understanding, and he gets rejected. And, he, and according to, we looked at uh, the count in Luke, it looks like they were even wanting to kill him. They were so bitter and, and, and hateful and angry at Jesus. And things are looking a little bit rough for this young rabbi and his disciples. You know, he's booted out of town. You know, things were going so well, but sometimes things get a bit weird. And they get a bit dark, and they get a bit difficult. Even our Jesus encouraged that. I'm sure he was probably in, dis, discouraged, rather, to see that the people of his town, of his town, his home, just rejected him. Now, I don't think it took him by surprise, you know, but it did probably was a bit discouraging because he was a human. He's fully man, fully God, and because of that, he would feel disappointment. And so, you know, we in our ministry, in our walk, can feel disappointment. I believe Jesus did as well. Hold on to that thought. As I ask rhetorically, could it get any worse? Well, what about the killing of the forerunner? You know, John, you know, Jesus' cousin, the one who baptized many. Next slide, please. So part one, guilt-ridden. And I wrote this like a drama presentation, like we were in theater, just because I do things fun and interesting. But it looks like drama. In fact, this is the kind of drama that we're used to seeing on daytime television. I know none of you guys watch daytime television. But if you were, shame on you. And if you did, you'd be familiar with the kind of stories that we see here. But the thing is, it is, it is, it's, it's, it, there's something about TV it, that, 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 that we relate to. And I hate to say it, but there's a, there's a huge element of, of interest and intrigue when it comes to sinful things. Because we're sinful people. And we like to watch it because it's, ooh, it's exciting. But it's sinful. And it's wrong. And so we don't want to acknowledge it. Here, however, is a very sinful drama that's in the scriptures. This is a sinful daytime soap opera drama in our scriptures. But it's not here to glorify sin. It's here to point at the darkness that guilt. Guilt. Guilt-ridden man we're going to see here. And of course, I subtitled this a drama, Ghosts and Fear in the Dark. 
And it's found in Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. Next slide, please. Panic. Guilt can make people think and do really crazy, irrational things and think crazy, irrational thoughts. Guilt, you know, just like guilt. Francis Schaeffer, I've talked about before, and I'm just going to really quickly throw it out there. He, he, I like what he did. He, he categorized guilt in two levels. He talked about the state of guilt and the feeling of guilt. And sometimes you get them both at the same time. Sometimes you get one without the other. Let me explain this to you. If you were found, if you, if you did something wrong and you had to go to court and you're found guilty of it, you're guilty and you may feel bad about it and you may not feel bad about it. But the reality is you're guilty. Now, a lot of people who are found guilty for crimes go to jail, go to prison, and they feel like they've been wronged. Oh, it wasn't me. These are my circumstances. I didn't do anything wrong. So they have the guilt state, but they themselves don't have the guilty feelings that are associated with it. Um... Another thing is the world around us. There are many people who are filled with the guilt of their own sin and error, and, but they don't see it, they don't recognize their need for Christ and their need for salvation. So they have the guilt state, but they don't understand that they're guilty. So they don't have the feeling they're associated with it. Now, I think that feeling is very important. I call it a consciousness. Because, and the Bible talks about the conscious being careful because the world, in Romans, talk about how their conscience will be seared. So they stop feeling things. So that we need that feeling. That's a God-given blessing in our human bodies that we can feel guilt. And we stop feeling the guilt, that's trouble. That's trouble. But there's a lot of Christians, and here's how things can go a little bit backwards, who have been forgiven of their sins. So like walking into court and going before the judge, and the judge says, you are guilty, but however, you're now forgiven. Boom. You know, you've been, you've been um, you know, pardoned for your crime. Go. And they walk out thinking, I still kind of feel a bit guilty. I still feel a bit bad about what I did and who I am and the kind of person. And you know, that's like Christians, we've kind of carried that burden. Like, I would love God more. I would serve God more. I would do more for God. But, you know, he, you know I'm kind of, kind of a dirtbag, you know. But we forget. But we're forgiven. So we carry around the guilty feelings. But the state of guilt is removed. Because God has said, you're forgiven. Isn't that interesting how that works? So here we see guilt um, and it's causing Herod's here, the Tetrarch, to see ghosts. And yes, I put the Ghostbuster sign up there because I thought that was cheeky and funny. Forgive me for the, that. So Matthew 14, 1 through 2 says this. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So what is he talking about? Is John the Baptist is dead? He's afraid that he's risen from the dead and he's haunting the place? He's coming back to get Herod for killing him? Well, the scriptures go on to tell the story, okay? Let's go to the next slide, please. Here is the evil drama. And I subtitled this, Murder, Perversion, Lies, and Manipulation. And there is a fair amount of that in this story. And I did write it like you would see um, you know, a play written, you know? So it's Matthew 14, 3 to 12. First, starting in Act 1, Scene 1, John's arrest. And it says this in Matthew 14, 3. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John has been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Sounds like common sense to me. Problem is, when we're doing something wrong, we don't like it, especially if we're powerful and we're corrupt. We don't like to be told that we're doing something wrong. Now, sleeping with your brother's wife is just not right. 
And John was pointing that out to him. Now, Herodus, she was really frustrated. And we see that there's a lot of control. Because even Herod, he's afraid to, to, do, to arrest John. He's afraid to hurt him. But you can see the pressure coming from this totally immoral relationship. This is his sister-in-law that he's sleeping with. And you have the, the daughter gets involved with it. It's just, it's a weird story. And I apologize for the twisted nature of the story. But it shows the darkness of humanity and, and the kind of what's out there, what kind of evil is out there. And what's horrible about the stories we're going to see is sometimes it affects God's people, like what's going to happen here. So we have the darkness of this Herod, you know, this, this ruler. And he's, you know, he's being uh, confronted by John, saying this relationship's impure, immoral. It needs to stop. And then the pressure comes in from Herodias, who hates John the Baptist. Go, or kill him, arrest him. He didn't want to kill him because he's afraid. Because bear in mind, John was powerful. He had a political fear because people loved John because of the miracles, because the presence of God in his life. He was a man that was loved and well-respected. And Herod knew that, so he didn't want to kill him. Arrest him, that's fine. We'll keep him arrested. Maybe it'll calm him down a little bit. It'll shut him up a little bit. And then the, I don't even know how to call it, girlfriend, the wife, the sister-in-law, whatever, she'll, she'll be quiet. She'll leave me alone. But then Act 2, or Act 1, Scene 2, we have John's head. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodus danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now, a lot of Christian tradition, I try to research as, as little as possible because there's some really sick stuff associated with this. But the suggestion here is that this was an erotic dance by his niece, and it pleased him. And, and there even the suggestion that she was quite young as well. So we pop possible, like I said, perversion. It's, I don't want to get into it, but it's, it's gross. And this is what the evil world we live in. This is the stuff they like. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me, her, uh, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed, but because of his oath. Now we also see the stink and the stench of pride. You know what I'm saying? He, he was stuck. He had to fear the people. He knew what's probably right or wrong. Kind of like with, with, with Jesus from Pilate. He knew it was right or wrong. But because, he was, because of the fear of people, he, he, he was forced to do something stupid. Here again, because of pride though, Herod was, was forced to think stupid. Yeah, you know, I, I know I shouldn't kill John the Baptist. In fact, he didn't do anything. He should be released. Yeah, I know that. But because of this sick scene that he's brought upon himself, and then this oath that was fueled by the sickness of the scene, his pride comes in. It's like, well, I said anything, so on you go. So what happens? John dies. And that's dark. I'm going to leave the story now because it's kind of making me sick. It's dark. And we'll end it with this. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. How do you think Jesus feels? He just got rejected from his hometown. Now his cousin is dead. I think this might be a good time to be alone, to mourn, you know, to pray, to gather one's thoughts. And I think that's what Jesus was wanting to do. That's why we see Matthew 14, 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately, i.e. by himself for a change, to a solitary place. Jesus does not do things wrong. He always does things right. 
because he's Jesus and he's perfect, he's holy, right? So being alone sometimes is the right thing to do. In fact, the practice of solitude, I think, is a discipline that Christians don't take very seriously. How in the world can we hear from God if we don't shut up and listen to him? <laughs> we, sometimes it's good to be alone, to find that quiet place to be alone, to hear from God. This world, especially the West world we're living, is so busy, it's so loud, it's so every day. In fact, there used to be a time when we even had a day off in a week. Now we don't have that anymore. This, this world we live in is, and I believe that's satanic. I believe Satan wants us to be so busy that we can't stop to be with God. Jesus, the Son of God, knew that there's wisdom in stopping to be with God. So he sought a place to be alone. Sometimes, like I say, a solitary place is the best place to hear God's voice. So we go on. Hearing of this, however, the crowds, you know, the ministry, they followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he told them, what are you thinking? Leave me alone. Go away. Can you not see I'm depressed? Can you not see I want to be left alone? Can you not see I need some time alone? Is that what he did? No. He had compassion. Is that interesting? He knew what, he, what was needed for him was important. But he didn't think of himself first. He thought of others first. He would like to have some time alone to hear from God. But he saw that the crowd was there. And what did he do? He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't God just absolutely mind-boggling, loving, and just kind and just wonderful? Remember the story I just read, how dark and depressing it was. When, John, when Jesus heard that, it wasn't just a story. It was, well, it is reality. But, but to him, it was, ow, John, what? Ah, what a sick story. He wanted to be alone. And I know it's like, when I get down, well, I just want to be left alone. Just, ugh. And then somebody comes chapping at the door. Leave me alone. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. He had compassion. He healed their sick. Yes, the multitude, they were consumers. They were takers. We know that about them. But Jesus didn't get angry because of the, because of um, they disturbed his retreat. <laughs> Instead, he ministered to them. Isn't it interesting to learn from the character of Jesus? As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, "This is a remote place." Yes, because Jesus wanted to find a remote place. That's why it's a remote place. <laughs> this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. So send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So. Of course, the expected thing to do is, okay, we're out here. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere. These people are out here. We can't take care of them. Send them home, Jesus. Send them away so, they, so the situation won't get any worse than it already is. Imagine having a, we look like some crazy cult going out in the middle of nowhere and everybody dying from starvation. You know, come on, Jesus. Let's sharpen up. What are we going to do here? Come on, Jesus. Give us the green light to send everybody away. There really isn't anything that we can do for them. We've depleted our resources, right? They've depleted the resources, right? Next slide, please. Wrong. They have not depleted the resources. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You can choose to send them away if you want, but they don't need to go away. Come on, boys, think outside the box. What, what, who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with God. We're dealing with God's divine power, Jesus Christ, and, and they're they're involvement, their place in God's divine kingdom, miraculous, powerful kingdom. So what does he say to them? He says, you give them something to eat. So again, this is Matthew 14, 16, and 17. They don't need to go away. 
You give them something to eat. Here's a chance for the disciples to do something for the people. Perhaps do something amazing. Think about that. Here's our opportunity to do something really amazing. What are you going to do about it? Consider this story. I also have here in the slide, if you see it, Matthew 17, 19 to 20. Here's another opportunity for disciples to do something amazing in which they didn't. Were they unable to? Don't know. They just didn't. We'll just say that. It's the story of the demon-possessed boy. This is when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples were actually all confuffled. And there was a boy down there and their dad. They're all confuffled. What's going on here? And they couldn't help the boy who was being possessed. But Jesus came and <laughs> exercised the demon like, no, no bother. The disciples came to Jesus, as it says later, privately and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive it out? Here's another opportunity for them to do something amazing and miraculous. And Jesus replied, and this is him talking to his disciples, okay? That would include us. We're disciples, right? Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What does that mean? Wow, that looks like some pretty crazy stuff in there. <laughs> Moving a mountain. I've never seen a mountain be moved. What is he saying here? I don't think he expects us to go around moving mountains, but he's expecting us to minister, to care, to love, to not be afraid to go out there, to not be afraid to, to, to put yourself out, to not be afraid of the limited resources, to not be afraid of our inabilities and our you know, stupidity. Don't be afraid, but to put total trust in God. That's what faith is, total trust in God. Even the smallest amount of faith, just a little walk in the right direction, can do amazing things like move mountains. Yeah? So here again, back to the story, Matthew 14, 16, and 17. It goes on 17 to say, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. That's the answer. Come on, God, let's get real. We're pragmatic disciples. We only have this little bits of stuff. This is all we have. We are limited to our circumstances. Do you feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. We're limited to our circumstances. This is what we have here. This is what God has given to us, and so we're stuck here. Is that true? Next slide. Wrong again. Jesus said this, bring them here to me, in verse 18. Probably the best thing a disciple could ever do is bring our problems to Jesus, to bring this difficult dilemma to Jesus. Bring him our concerns, our worries, our troubles, our pains, our problems. That's, that's just wisdom, isn't it? He's our rabbi. He's our Lord. He's the Messiah. Jesus, here's the situation. Again, sometimes we need to be alone, you know, find that solitude, quiet place so we can just be there with him. Sometimes there's so much going on in our minds that's hard to make sense of things, and we just need to just let him go and let Jesus enter in and just give us some direction. So, okay, you can't figure out the problem. Because, again, as people, we're quite pragmatic. Okay, a lot of people. Now, bear in mind, it's, I'm not even going to say there's 5,000 people. Because it's probably more likely 10,000 people. Because they only number the men back then. So we have a lot of women and children hanging about as well. So this is a huge crowd of people. Um, and we got this. So you can see one guy holding the food in his arms. This is it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I feel that way. God, there's so much to do. How are we going to pull this off? And I could see the fear in their eyes of disappointment, of people maybe getting sick because they can't have, because of malnutrition, not being fed. Well, 
when we bring our concerns, our problems, our issues to Jesus, we can expect results. We can expect that he's, he'll have an answer for us. Right? He did for the disciples here. So what did he do? He directed the people to sit down on the grass. Okay, guys, sit down on the grass. Now, when Jesus gives an order, it's always in the best interest of people to obey it. <laughs> when Jesus says to do something, just do it. He's wise. He's ultimate wisdom. So Jesus says, sit on the grass. And then after that, he takes the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? They all ate and were satisfied. Jesus is truly the master of the molecule. How he did it, I don't know, but he did it. He multiplied this, enough of this little bits of fish and bread to satisfy and now, now, again, they numbered the men, 5,000 people, right? Men are big eaters. You know what? Forget that. Children are big eaters. Seriously. My, my son, Jed, can eat twice as much food. He doesn't stop eating. I could eat one meal a day and be satisfied. He just doesn't stop eating. So the fact that they didn't count the children and the children, I'm not going to talk about women how much they eat, by the way. I'll get in trouble. I mean, come on. That's a lot of food consumption here going on. So he didn't, it wasn't just a, like, like some of the skeptics will say, oh, he just, they just kind of rationed it out. Bogus. Jesus is a master of the molecule. He created out of a little bit of resources that we have, an, I would even go as far as say it's an infinite amount of resources. Because look, they even have stuff left over. So they all ate satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces and were left over. 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. I want to tell a little story. I call this the, the order of provision. And I see this in here, how Jesus, you who know, is the bread of life, right? John, 3, John 6, 35 says this. He's declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Isn't that amazing? Now, the reason why I say this is a testimony or provision, I call it also the testimony cornerstone, is because what we have experienced, what we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and experienced is this right here. We have experienced this. I can tell you that right now. And it goes like this. Jesus, the bread of life, he's offered, he, he used the disciples to distribute, right? And then the people receive in the satisfaction. One thing that we've always committed to do to this village is to care for people as much as we possibly can. And that would go specifically for young people. So we've always fed them dinner. We've always provided food. We've always, Tuesday nights, the Wednesday nights, and, and we've always provided food for the children we reach out to. We've always had an open door. We've always wanted to just give and give and give. And we've never had the fear of running out. Never. Even though it's possible, it's possible we can run out. Never the fear. Why? Because I trust that if I'm doing God's work, he's not going to let me run out. And I've had people in this village, and this is a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. People in this village come up to us and say, how do you afford these things? And the only answer we can give is God. And they hate that. So they try to analyze it. So you get government grants. We have never taken a government grant. Okay, so it's lottery funds. We've never taken lottery funds. So you charge. We have never, ever charged. Where's the money come from? It comes from God. They hate that. I like that they hate it. It's a testimony. God's good. And the dying world doesn't want to believe and see the fact that God's good. But here it is. And it happens today. We see it every week at Cornerstone. Amen. Next slide, please. So 
let's try that being alone thing again. Right? So in Jesus, in Matthew 14, 22, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Okay, I want to be left totally alone. So even you disciples, get in the boat, go away. And go ahead of him on the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So the disciples are dismissed, the crowd is dismissed. Jesus wants to be alone. Is that interesting? Have you ever seen that in these stories before? To me, it's it's interesting. He's still, he's ministering and he's still in the back of his mind thinking of John, the cousin John in, in that horrible situation. He wants to be alone with God and mourn. But he's still ministering and doing amazing things. Doesn't stop him, but he still kind of wants to be alone. After he had dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. So he didn't say, well, maybe God wants me to just to keep busy. No, he still had in his mind, I need to be alone with God to hear from him. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against him. Now, think about this, guys. Jesus sent the disciples by boat to be alone. He sent them away from him in a boat, knowing that the storm's coming. Because Jesus knows all kinds of things. Okay? Again, the buffeted, this, this wind buffeting against the boat. What does that mean? I put, I put there a quick definition if you can read it. Yeah. Uh, it means going against the wind to test the integrity of a ship. So it's like, it's called, it's like, like the headwind. It's like a, a boat. Back then they didn't have engines and whatnot. So they relied on the wind to push the boat along. But if the wind's coming the opposite direction, it's very difficult very difficult. You may have to drop sail and maybe, you know, use oars or something. Manual labor. Very difficult. But this is an intense wind. It, it tests the integrity of the ship, which is interesting. I thought that when I looked at the definition of the integrity of the ship, is it the integrity of the ship that's being tested here? Or is it the integrity of the disciples being tested here? Okay, guys, we're on a boat. Jesus told us to go. Here we go. And now it's a storm. Jesus, what did you bring us into? You brought us in this dodge to it. Look, at he's up there safe on the mountain. And we're on this boat. I don't like this. Maybe it's a testing for disciples. What's your integrity? What do you like, right? And no, just a note. Quick, radical storms are very common on the Sea of Galilee. So this shouldn't come as no surprise. It can come quickly, and they can be really intense. And these fishermen, and there's other people as well, but there were at least four fishermen there, they should have been able to understand and dealt with the situation. So it wasn't like Jesus tested them beyond their capacity, and maybe they weren't even wholly afraid of the storm. I don't know. But the reality is, there they are. Um, did Jesus know that he was sending disciples into a storm? I ask that question, I'll ask it again, and I say, of course he does. You bet he does. But then why did he send them out, knowing that the storm was coming? One, because Jesus wanted to be alone. That's obvious, we see it there. He wanted to be alone. Go, guys. But number two, possibly, number two, I think, so the disciples can experience the storm. Our characters, who we are as people. Jesus is blessed with being fully man and fully God. So he's got this, this thing called divinity. <laughs> so he's blessed. He doesn't need to experience things like we need to experience. But we have to go through things in order to build character. Jesus didn't need to be on the boat. In fact, if he did, he probably would be sleeping on the boat. What's on, guys? Storm? Ah, oh, big deal. What? Okay, there it is. You know, I mean, he doesn't need it. He's divine. But the disciples, they need it because they need to grow up. Sometimes we need to grow up, and sometimes we go through trials and tribulations to grow up. Yeah, thank you, Gary. So, an interesting lesson. Almost done. An interesting lesson. In the darkest of storms, Jesus 
is there. So think of the disciples. They feel all alone, possibly. I'm speculating, I know. Jesus is up on the mountain. They're there on the storm. This is no fair. But Jesus is there. No, he's not. He's up on the mountainside. No, 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 Jesus is there. No, he's not. He's alone, praying. What's he like? Probably sleeping. No, he's not. He's with us. He's here. No, he's not. He's away. No, he's here. Let's read. Matthew 14, 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Wait, I must be wording that wrong. They're, they're in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Let me read this again. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. What? How in the world is he going to do that? Did he get on a boat? Is he a speedboat? Does he have a yacht or something? You know, after all, I've been told by preachers that Jesus had a limousine and, and yachts and everything else. So maybe he jumped on his yacht. I don't know. No, he didn't. He walked on the water. Why? Because he can. He's Jesus. <laughs> Walk on water. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. Here's that ghost gang. I should put the ghost butts for sign up again. They said, and again, when miracle, miraculous things, sometimes even for disciples, even for Christians, it's a bit confusing. You know, it is. Like, what's God doing here? Certainly, that's not Jesus walking on the water. It's a ghost because people don't walk on water. You know what I'm saying? Common sense things again. Disciples are still hung up in the common sense business. The, not enough food. People don't walk on water. Well, maybe it's Jesus the water. No, 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 no. Well, yes, it was him. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. How amazing is when we're in a storm, in a horrible situation, in a dark place, in a trial, and Jesus is there and he goes, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It is I. I'm with you. I'm with you. We're going to go through this thing together. So here you see, he knows they're, they're probably a bit tripped out. Maybe it's even getting a bit dark. Yeah, this is before dawn, so it's getting dark. Then Peter I'm not going to talk too much about this because, you know, I don't know if it was Peter's pride that made him want to work out in the water or maybe it's Peter's character as a leader. Maybe he wanted to really test faith. And I don't know what his motivation was. Could be bad, it could be good, whatever it was. But the reality is he says, if it is you, Lord, let me come out to walk on water. And Jesus, I like this. He goes, on you go. Maybe Peter's finally getting it, this faith thing. Come on, on you go. The other disciples are like, I don't know. Let, me, let me compute this. <laughs> I, was like, let me, what, I need to digest this, what's going on here. This is a bit too weird for me. But Peter says, I kind of want to see this. Uh, can I do this? And Jesus says, sure you can. On you go. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, see the fear comes in, right? He was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Now, here's, here's an application to that. Sometimes we walk out in faith, like Peter, right? And we feel like we're sinking. You know what it's like? Okay, we're taking a chance. We're going to take a step of faith. We're going to go out and try to do something. Something brave, something daring, something out of character, something just that's just going to be mind-boggling. But then we feel like we're sinking. So it's, it's good to know Jesus is there. And if he's called you to do that, and he did call him. He said, come. He didn't say, Wait. It wasn't like Peter was in total disobedience. I want to come out. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're going to sink. And then he did it anyways. No, he said, come. So sometimes we might have an idea. I want something really brave, really bold for Jesus. Can I do this, God? And God says, come. Then we go out. And we feel like we're starting to slip a little bit. This is getting real scary. This is getting really intense. I don't like this. But we can rest assured Jesus is there to hold our hand. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. 
Now, he's, I don't think he rebukes him when he says little faith. I think that's his pet name for disciples. You know what I'm saying? Little children, little faithers. You don't see it much in, in any other kind of Greek writings in that language at the time. Is, and, and Jesus only used it in the Bible. And I think it's just like, he's, hey, you're, you're young. You're learning. It's okay. My little faithers, my little children. Come on. I mean, it's his pet name for his disciples. I don't know. But you're, you, you, you're going to learn. You're going to be okay. Come on. Why did you doubt? I called you to do this. Don't be afraid. And then they climbed in the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him. What a response. Yes, God does amazing things. We don't fool ourselves full of pride because we're awesome in our ministry and we're awesome Christians and we do things just right. No, we worship God and say, truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Some disciples, sometimes disciples could use a little faith-building exercise like this, you know, so they can glorify God in their testimony. I like that. I put that word testimony for, for, for a reason because testimony is an important thing and so I, I'll define it again down here. To me, and this is my opinion, I don't know if you guys disagree with me or not, a testimony is not just a story for some other person. It's not just like, here, I, I want to tell you my token story so that you can hear it and, and, and whatever, get encouraged or filled up or com, you know, compelled to accept Jesus. I believe it's more than just a story. I believe a testimony is your actual ex, everyday experience with him. It is, what is God? If you have a testimony that was 20 years ago, but there's nothing happening from then point to on, there's a proper testimony. A testimony should be an ongoing experience with God. It's your experience with him that has made you what you are today. So yes, you have the testimony maybe in a classic sense where I was lost but now I'm found, you know. But it doesn't end with that. In fact, I can go on and talk about my testimony even before that, where I can see God doing things in my life that I never realized and then I became saved, born again, I'm rescued, and oh, yay, and I can tell you different stories about that. But it, he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. Every day I've got a testimony. This right here is a part of their testimony. 